0: Let me ask you something. How can philosophy help us question fundamental assumptions? What does it mean to do philosophy as a medical education professional? And which areas of medical education research would benefit most from a philosophical approach? Welcome to the podcast in which we question everything about medical education. This podcast accompanies the series on philosophy and medical education that I'm editing for the journal Teaching and Learning in Medicine. I'm Mario Vein, and today we will discuss the first article in this series. This article is called Problems No One Looked For, Philosophical Expeditions into Medical Education. I wrote it together with Anna Cianciolo, whose voice you will be hearing shortly. It appeared in the June issue of Teaching and Learning in Medicine, and it addresses the value that philosophy can have for medical education. Anna is the editor-in-chief of this journal and associate professor at the Department of Medical Education of the Southern Illinois University School of Medicine. I'm here with an Anna and an Anne. Anne Delacroix, also a very interesting last name, is an assistant professor at Research in Education, Faculty of Medicine, Vrije Universiteit Amsterdam in the Netherlands. She is a teacher, a teacher trainer, and a researcher. And our mission is to stimulate teachers and students to have meaningful and reflective conversations. So we're all in a Zoom meeting, as I imagine many of you who are listening to this in 2020 are daily. And we all have to adapt to these times, but it may also be the perfect time to reflect. Anna is in Illinois, Anna is in Amsterdam, and I'm in The Hague. So Anna, could you please introduce yourself and say a little bit about the series and why you decide to include this in your journal? And then I will ask Anna to introduce herself and take over from here. Because although Hannah Arendt said that thinking is about a dialogue between me and myself, I thought for the first episode it might be better to ask someone else to moderate. But let's start with Anna.
1: All right. Well, I'm thrilled to be here and chatting with you. Um, I I come to the field of medical education from... The outside, you could say, uh, my training is in human factors, and um, my field wasn't medicine it it was military leadership and professional development so i I come at the whole field of medical education from a completely different angle, and it's raised a lot of interesting questions for me about why things are done the way they are, and um, what kinds of approaches might might be more useful. And I'm also someone that really, really enjoys weaving together from different fields. So I read very, very widely. Um, There was a time when I was part of a workshop and we were asked to draw a picture of our literature review strategies. And a lot of people had flow charts where they were that kind of mapped what a systematic review flow chart might look like. But I had drawn an octopus and the arms were reaching out (laughs) to all these different fields. And there was poetry and history and geology and um, literature, just all these different perspectives that I like to bring to bear. And of course, philosophy is one of them, too. Uh, so the series, I think, what really struck me when, when you approached me, Mario, about the possibility of doing this series was an opportunity to do some weaving, to bring other fields to bear to the the problems that we're trying to solve in, in medical education, and I see the, the readers, I envision that the readers of teaching and learning in medicine are, are mostly practitioners with a scholarly bent who have practically inspired problems that they want to think deeply about, that they want to solve. And philosophy really strikes me as a way of thinking that can help them do that. And so it's super exciting to me to bring that opportunity to the readers to do this together with philosophers and with each other
0: Wow! Well, great thank you and i really love working on this article with you and i'm really looking forward to the series anna i now officially uh, transfer the host privileges to you as we uh, oh. do in the zoom meetings uh, sometimes but yes. could you say something about yourself first
2: yes so my name is anna Delacroix, like you said um i always identify first and foremost as a teacher and I find myself a very practical people person. So I always like interacting with groups of people. Um, and I found myself teaching at a secondary school. I studied linguistics and Dutch language. And I slowly veered off to different arenas. And I uh, found myself in medical education. Um, and I never really quite reflected or knew why my viewpoints were valuable and and I wasn't aware of their difference from the norm, but I did notice that there was a new sound coming from me that people weren't used to around me in medical education. And now, finally, after a lot of work, also with you, Mario, um, I can find more words for that and and reflect on that. And I think it is because I am from the humanities, with uh, a linguistics background, and I've developed uh, a vision on education and teaching myself. So if you combine those and add them to the clinical background of most doctors that we work with, I think there's a real powerful mix. And there's, yeah, to me, it's just a source of inspiration merging those worlds. So my research now is mainly about uh, reflection and how to hold meaningful interactions, meaningful and inclusive interactions where you actually benefit from diversity in groups uh, for personal development and learning.
0: Wow, that promises a lot for this podcast.
1: Yeah. <laughs> oh dear.
2: <laughs> so it feels uh, slightly odd. I've been given the power to host now because Mario, uh, like he said, like Hannah Arendt said, a silent dialogue between me and myself. Well, for you, it is now a dialogue between you, yourselves and me. I mean, tag along. <laughs> so yeah, we have some questions. So this paper, Problems No One Looked For, is the first one in a series. Uh, well, Anna, for you as an editor to invest in a series about a topic like philosophy is, is quite an investment. Uh, what made you want to start this series? I think that
1: a, a primary motivator were the the persistent problems that I see that medical educators wrestle with. And it seems to me that having a different way of framing these problems is potentially the best way to deal with what seems to be intractable. And the series, I mean, the topic itself is just interesting to me. A philosoph- I took philosophy courses as a college student and have always had an interest in it. But it sure seemed to me that that demonstrating, having the dialogue about how philosophy and, and medical education overlap was going to provide this this new knob to turn on the problems that that just seemed to be recurring for for decades in maybe slightly different forms, but um, Needed needed just some jolt out of the way that we were looking at things and philosophy seemed to be a wonderful way to do that.
2: Mm -hmm. And when we talk about philosophy in your paper, you mention uh, some practices and some themes Uh, in popular language. People say, oh, I'm being philosophical. What would you how would you summarize what doing philosophy is?
1: In a word, I would say questioning. Mm -hmm. Um, That is that is how I understand philosophy. And this is, of course, coming From someone who's not trained as a philosopher, but what I see it as is basically problematizing the the very things that we take for granted um, and the things that we use to frame how we approach our problems. And so instead of just looking at, uh, I'm trying to not speak too abstractly. And have more concrete examples. But um, if we're talking about medical education, instead of simply asking what's the best way to assess our learners, a philosophical philosophical approach would ask why do we assess? What do we mean by assessment? And that kind of analysis, I think, is a signature or hallmark of what it means to be philosophical. Right. Mario, do you agree?
2: Do you
0: have anything to add? I I agree with that for sure. And there there are two ways in which you can say what is philosophy. It's, of course, an academic discipline where one of the main topics is what is philosophy and who is right about (laughs) philosophy and what's the best way to do it. But that's what we recognize as well from any academic discipline, I think. Um, Another way is just to say, well, the literal translation is it's a love of wisdom. You, you pursue that. One example from, that I like from The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy is a science fiction uh, novel. And they built this computer the size of a planet to figure out the answer to the question of life, uh, meaning and everything. And I think from, for for many years or decades, the, the computer was working and finally it came to the revealing ceremony. And there was all these people came from the whole galaxy. And the, finally, the answer was revealed, 42
2: yeah but then they
0: didn't know what they didn't know the question what is the question to so that's what i find very interesting about philosophy because everyone asks questions like um how do i get by in life what's the best thing to do and how should i act here um but uh, if you're let's say if you professional philosopher which is not, I think, a trademark thing. So you can call yourself a professional <laughs> philosopher. Oh, it's
2: here just, we go, Anna. Yeah.
0: <laughs> you, just, you, you just keep pursuing these questions no matter where they lead to, even and especially when they lead you to, you have to give up some of the things that you've always believed to be true. Like if I if I look back in my life, I think if I started with philosophy, it was when I went with my mother to uh, Malaysia, and then we, we, uh, came to our friends and and to our house and everything was different and very hot and but the thing that that just baffled me was that there we entered their house and there was no coat hanger in the in the hallway but every dutch house you know you you enter the house and there's a coat hanger it's mm-hmm. like if you drop something it falls down and if you enter a house and there's a coat hanger but there mm-hmm. was none and that's uh so there were two things one is that uh, of course, why don't I have coat hangers? Because it never gets below, uh, I don't know, 25 degrees. You don't have coats. If you don't have coats, you don't have coat hangers. But the other one, I started wondering. Okay, but this is just how I live my life. That that like you you eat, you have forks and coat hangers and everything like that. What else might there be that I just I know 100% sure. I don't even question it. But in in another part of the world or another planet or another historical period it's different
2: yeah i think it's interesting because both of you uh mentioned some central ingredients for being philosophical or doing philosophy and two of them strike me as interesting Uh, the first one is it takes time and you write that as well in your paper you say the it's slowing down to ask yourself these questions anna you just said stop and think why are we doing this what does this mean and Mario says, keep on asking questions. So this is something that takes time, maybe patience. Um, is that is that maybe why we don't do it so much?
0: I think people are doing it.
2: Mm-hmm. We are
0: getting a lot of responses for people that they're saying, yeah, I've been thinking about this too. And But I think the difference is that it's not yet done in a very systematic way. In, in there, Of course, there are... Um, uh, if it's about philosophy a lot of times it's about ethics or it's about philosophy of science there's actually a kind of yeah more or less systematic it's starting actually that more is written about that questioning like what is kind of your the paradigm and epistemology and the ontology with which you're Mm -hmm. doing research but those are only two branches of uh, a tree with a lot of branches that's why i'm very grateful that now there's an opportunity to have it uh, appear in a, in a journal.
2: Yeah. So we're finding time for these
1: conversations. Right. Anna. Uh, Yeah. I'd like to throw out there that I do think that it's extremely challenging for people by nature to suspend their need for closure and that, that humans are designed to see patterns. I mean, that's the way our cognition is set up and we desperately want to see patterns and we want to see them as quickly as possible, because that means that we then can take action and humans are of course designed to take action as well. And so the the slowing down to ask questions is in some ways counter to our nature. And I think that that's why it's hard in, in medical education as it is much more broadly too. you know, being able to, to pause and, and ask those questions, it requires making a judgment or a trade-off between the, the, the sort of agitation of being in a liminal space mm-hmm. and um, the on the one hand, but then the dissatisfaction with a hastily arrived at solution that either doesn't work properly from the get-go or, or fails to adapt as conditions change. And so there's just so much pressure, I think, on that people put on themselves and that's placed on them from, from outside to make decisions quickly. And, and that's what makes the slowing down challenging. But if we can create, you know, a safe place to do this kind of thing to slow down, as well as like with the series to provide some some tools and perspectives and ways of thinking that yes. can help people get started with that to make it feel yeah. like it's accessible. Because that's the other thing that
2: I was thinking of. It sounds so attractive, but maybe uh, we haven't been taught how to do this. I mean, Mario said that intuitively he found differences to his own norms and values and customs. He found them interesting, whereas a lot of people might find uh, experience a sense of discomfort. Uh, and and will then say, this is odd, this is weird, this is different, no. Um, so so possibly to teach people how to embrace different ideas and how new ideas and difficult questions, um, but which is why your paper is brilliant, I think, is very useful as well. So this discomfort with philosophy, I know that, Mario, when we did work together, we encountered some of that. Can you... No. Philosophize
0: about that <laughs> 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 well we what, what we uh, the article that we also quote in our paper is that um, uh, doctors uh, but also teachers have to be able to deal with ambiguity mm-hmm. and uh, that's very uncomfortable and mm-hmm. there's philosophers uh, like for instance uh, martin heidegger who who speaks about um being able to face your own existence but also that your existence is final and uh another example is is the book that we also mentioned which is i think uh, a great great philosophy book written, written from not as a philosophy book but that's uh, when bread becomes air by Kalaniti and at one point he speaks about uh performing surgery and and the dilemma of if you if you hand shakes a little bit uh you want to uh, i'm not i don't have a medical background with it which is becoming painfully obviously now <laughs> but if you if you move one millimeter to the side you cut instead of the the tumor or the bad thing you cut out the language center of the person so i think uh this this is the kind of uncomfort that fortunately philosophers are able to like me are able to avoid but it's kind of being at the limit of existence being okay that sounds very dramatic it it means like being allowing yourself to be in a space of ambiguity which like children are all the time and i i taught philosophy to to children sometime and was uh i loved it so much and what I always told them is that it's like, you have the childlike curiosity on the one hand, uh, but uh, children's questions to adults are often very uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. Where do we come from? Uh, Why uh, is this, you know, you know the uh, questions that children uh, ask. But then the adults have the kind of, uh, yeah, I would say the kind of discipline or integrity to pursue something like that and make it into a book so if you can combine those two that's that's very good but it's like it can be very uncomfortable especially uh, if you ask questions that um, people say why are you asking these questions because we have this uh, uh answer already like i know you and i anna we we we, heard, we had these reactions sometimes when we wrote articles like uh uh, about reflection or about empathy like uh yeah but uh, uh there's evidence uh, for this already so that that mm-hmm. makes it also that's like socrates is the figure of course that everybody knows socrates is walking up to people that somebody is going to the courthouse why are you going to the co- courthouse house yeah i'm going to uh, sue my father why yeah well because he did this to me and because that's just And that should be the end of the conversation. But then Socrates asks from, oh, wow, I'm so happy to meet you because uh, I've wondered about this justice thing for all my life and I've never met someone who actually knows what it is. So please Mm -hmm. explain. I'm all ears. And then, of course, uh, the person finds out that what their concept of justice is. Yeah, uh, not not holding up uh, to, in this case, Socrates questioning. Mm
2: -hmm. But of
0: course, you're, we know, we all know what happened to so- Socrates. He was uh, put to death for uh, polluting the minds of the youth. It's about asking the question that may be uncomfortable or that no one wants to
1: think about. I, I've been thinking recently about how developmental theories, like Piaget's theories, um, they they talk about learning as something that occurs in the service of resolving ambiguity and reducing uncertainty. So it, it's prompted by some form of disequilibrium, and then learning and change happens. And then there's a, a steady state until the next um, phase of disequilibrium happens or experience. And it sure seems to me that in in modern times, especially where we're questioning a lot of our foundations, um, questioning the the history and practices of colonialism and Sexism and the roles of women, and racism, and e- where lots of things are being kind of kicked up. We're, what we're seeing is that acquiring acquiring new understanding is actually creates disequilibrium. Disequ- um, once we we sort of learn to to question things that we we took for granted. Now, it's actually the opposite or the flip side of what developmental theories tell us the purpose of learning is. And that just strikes me as really very interesting. Like how do we, if, if we're designed such that we aim to resolve uncertainty and take action, but learning as adults is creating uncertainty and delay in action, how do we navigate that?
2: Mm. Mm. That's a great kind of translation you're you're moving to a real education question and visions on learning. Uh, I wanted to to ask you um, you both come from different disciplines than medicine. what is the field the the interdisciplinary field i guess of medical education with a very clear goal training young young people freshly into adulthood to to become Certified doctors that can take responsibility and manage to uh, to, to do a very challenging job. Um, what does that field of medical education look like from the perspective of philosophy, and from your perspective, your respective perspectives? Okay. Yeah, there you go. You're fighting. Who gets the answer? This? <laughs> I think Mario just won this uh, long-distance uh, little game. <laughs>
0: Some of the things that philosophers do are really childish. It's just what is the most simple and basic way in which we can say this? So mm-hmm. uh, we could ask this about medical education. Why uh, do we have, uh, let's say, healthcare education, right?
2: Mm-hmm.
0: We have health care because we have health. So uh, because we are mortal, because we get sick. If we wouldn't get sick, then, then we wouldn't need health care. And why do we have health care? It's because we care about our health. So uh, if one animal sees another animal that is sick or dead, they can walk right by it. But if a human sees another human dying by the side of the road, I hope you would check out if this person is okay or not. So Mm -hmm. obviously, if we're speaking to medical education audience, these are people that would do that. They care about uh, health. And why do we have healthcare education? Because the human being is the animal without qualities. So we're not, we don't have the speed of a cheetah. We can't fly. uh, There's many things we cannot do. If we really want to accomplish something, then we have to learn it. So that's why we need education with the whole system of technical uh, things about it. Then, uh, of course, why do we have healthcare education research? Is because there's no given answer to how to organize that. So we want to have doctors in our society. We have a, a, a social contract with society—a uh, lot of resources, time, and, and talented people that maybe could do many other things—are uh, instead doing healthcare. And in order to to do that on a large scale, we have to we have to give something. We have to kind of have a guarantee or a trust of society that we have to honor. This is just a very simple description of healthcare education that I think, yeah, who wouldn't agree on that? But what it gives me is that if I'm doing research, I want to know that my research actually contributes to this goal. So it doesn't just contribute to, uh, you know, having a nice publication or uh, answering the research question, which is also good. Ultimately, it should have, in however small way, it should have something to do with taking care of health through research, through doctors, through like this whole detour. Uh, if if we think about uh, physics, for instance, I think physics has a pretty pretty clear mission and, and a, a idea of how to accomplish that. But medical education, what is exactly, what is it that is the, the ground for it or the anchor for it?
1: Yeah, I think um, coming from human factors as a field um, it it also had very practical aims in that rather than necessarily than developing medical doctors they're developing aircraft pilots and they're developing nuclear power plant operators and so forth and it's coming to medical education with that lens i see that it's this very curious approach to developing practitioners with a higher edge. You know, let me step back for a second. It's developing practitioners who who are demonstrating certain performances in the in the business of improving health care and caring for people and What is what I see is that medical education applies a higher education and very knowledge and classroom oriented model to producing these practitioners and performances. And it's very, very curious to me because I, having worked with the military for over a decade, they had a very performance oriented model as well and their training approaches were very performance oriented as well. So while there might be classroom instruction, the the primary focus of education was getting people into the field and doing things, becoming the person who was going to do the things that a leader does. And then the knowledge component was um, was supporting rather than the central part of it. The model for physician expertise that that seems implicit in our standardized certification testing and in the ways that um, the hierarchy sort of um, emerges or plays out is that an expert physician is someone who knows a lot of things and then doing happens as a an output of of knowing and so that's a very opposite approach of what what I've seen from the human factors perspective. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: Um, So the, in the article, when we chose the example of the, the teach back, the resident not demonstrating teach back, um, that, that example was not an unfamiliar example in, in our, my own experience in that um, there was a, a performance deficit that was, um, very easy to think about as a a knowledge deficit or a, a training deficit, when in fact the picture might be a lot, lot broader than that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess in a nutshell, when I approach medical education from a human factors perspective, a lot of the time I'm pausing to say, well, what is actually going on when we, are talking about learners doing things or teachers doing things. What is really happening? Has anyone ever looked or have we just had Blue Ribbon panels and Delphi studies and things like that to get at what our understanding is of what an expert physician um, does and knows and I think that if we had a performance orientation not not in the evaluative sense, but in the doing sense that it would, it would expose a whole lot of things that we do not see and, or take for granted in terms of what's actually happening in medical practice. And that would be a great place to start when defining our learning objectives and um, what it is that we expect an expert physician to be and do.
0: Which, by the way, is, is a v- very philosophical question. What is happening? We, we also quote Wittgenstein in the paper where he says the philosophy's treatment of a question is like the treatment of an illness. And there are right. many similar if you it could be like you were just speaking about how a doctor approaches a patient with some illness. What what is actually going on? What is happening here? Am I missing something? Uh, yeah. How should I look at this?
2: is it um um in a way it's also using your own experience and your own thought wisely and taking time to investigate yourself and your thoughts um whereas my observation of medical education would also be that there's a lot of uh, value uh uh given to to evidence evidence in the sense of numbers and and uh, countable outcomes Whereas sometimes the question, like you pose, is this working? What is my gut feeling? What is actually happening? Um, those questions are possibly also a very good start for any kind of analysis.
1: Mm-hmm. Right. And the thing, something I really like about that is that it being philosophical about medical edu- education excludes no one. So anyone right. who has questions about why is this not working? Wait what it, what is this? <laughs> and, and then stepping mm-hmm. back and back and back. Anyone can do that. So we're not leaving medical educators out who aren't trained in philosophy. It's actually an invitation to join in, in screwing around like kids and asking questions <laughs> about everything. Yeah. And I, that I think is the most promising aspect about being philosophical in medical education. Yeah, inviting everyone to become
2: the 10-year-old Mario who uh, <laughs> seen something he's not used to and going, hey, hang on. Yeah, okay. Yes. Hey, and um, I was wondering as well, I um, I love being philosophical and learning from philosophy, uh, but I'm also a very practical person. I also want to get stuff done. And I also, um, if I have a group of 30 students waiting for me, then I can you know, do philosophy for ages about how I should teach them, but I also have to go and do it. So can you tell me a bit more about how philosophy can be made practical?
1: That is a great question. And I know it's one that a lot of our readers will ask as well. Um, and I, I think that there has to be a time, of course, when the questioning is suspended in order to move forward and get something done. And, and maybe Mario can speak to this more concretely I, but i my sense is that it's a matter you have to kind of make a judgment call that there isn't like a right answer in terms of when to to stop the questioning except that um the i guess the the potential way of thinking about it is that you suspend the questioning but you don't discard it you move forward with your understanding at that point in the questioning, and then you allow that to be a space to kind of test what you're thinking about these things and then ask further questions after that so that not all the questioning happens before you take an action, but that the questioning is something that helps you move forward with the actions that you take. In, in many respects, that's what science is. Um, So it would be a familiar process to those who are gathering evidence, um, proposing models and theories, testing them, discarding them, and and continually advancing with with how they approach things. I think you could do that with education, too.
2: Mario, (laughs) do you have any thoughts?
0: (laughs) Um, This is a question I've been thinking about a lot. And uh, I think that uh, there's an image of philosophy that it is abstract. Uh, well, mm-hmm. actually, I would find it uh, a lot more concrete at times. So I think a lot of times what people do is they think uh, when when they say we're being practical, um, they're actually being very abstract because they're saying things like, well, like this uh, Socrates uh, example, well, it's for justice or I'm doing this because it's good or I'm doing this because it's there's evidence. And I think those are very abstract terms. They're like um, uh, almost more like uh, religious, you know, like uh, we we say a word and then we think that everybody knows what we're talking about. But actually, when you start to look at it, you, you first start to see, well, do we actually mean the same thing by that word? And that is very important because... Um, uh, if we're doing something serious like medical education, we have to uh, make sure that we're talking about the same things. And that is, I think, a very practical start. What are we going to actually talk about? Well, one example for, for the, the paper that uh, Anna and I just published about what we propose is that if you introduce a new educational program in the curriculum, the first question now is like, how are we going to assess this? But mm-hmm. uh, or how are, how are we going to measure this or how we're we going to evaluate this? And what we propose after a philosophical analysis is to say, wait, uh, just ask yourself the question first, do we want to measure or assess this? And uh, if we want it, can we do it? Because, for instance, in physics, there's lots of things like dark matter that physicists would love to measure, but they, they can't. So they have to find another way to deal with it. And I think that's very practical because then if you're going to say that something like empathy or reflection or professional identity formation is important in your curriculum, then you, you're you actually doing something meaningful with it. So I think more than the opposition between abstract and practical, I would say that it's about asking what is meaningful. And in that way, you can discover that a lot of the things that we're already doing, they're already meaningful. And some of the things that we think we should be doing or that we try to do, they're actually less meaningful than the things we are already doing. So I don't know if this this sounds abstract, but it's like summarized by Nietzsche's motto, become who you are. And Mm -hmm. it has to do with, actually it has to do a lot with awareness of being, actually the question we asked before, what is happening? So, what is more practical than that? What is happening here? So, if you're in a meeting and you think uh, there's some disagreement or something, just blurt out, "Wait, I want to ask something. What is happening?" And then, you know, see what people's answers are. Usually, it helps, I think, in kind of uh, getting the the meeting back to what it is really about.
1: Yeah, I'd like to riff off that too. We talk about practical, and mm-hmm. you know, what do we mean when we say we're being practical? Well, we're engaged in practicing. And practicing implies um, a long-term endeavor. So we have, you take Yo-Yo Ma, for example. He practices his pieces and practices pieces. He does a concert, and the concert is not the end of practicing. The concert is an occasion to take stock of the practicing, to raise questions, and then inform the practice that follows afterward. Um, so I think if, you know, when we have questions about how, how useful is the questioning to what it is that we're trying to do, that question may stem from having this um, sort of duality or sense of, of either or about questioning and doing when the questioning is the doing and And anyone who is an expert who has spent those ten thousand hours practicing recognizes that the practicing is the doing, and the doing is the practicing and so so being philosophical about medical education it is it is in fact a practice, and the practical potential outcomes that it has is having a more informed solution to a particular problem that you're trying to solve. And that, of course, may give you some staying power with respect to how long that solution lasts. And if not, it gives you a framework for approaching what to do next when it doesn't. And that, I think, is some real power there. I don't
0: think you should be doing philosophy all the time, but there are some fundamental dilemmas in, in medical education and in medicine that that have been there for millennia, so I don't think we're going to solve them uh, with one research uh, uh, project or something. So it Mm -hmm. means you have to you have to keep answering questions about ethics, about the relationship between uh, theory and practice, about the relationship between uh, we want um, uh, trainees to approach their patients as, you know, unique human beings. But at the same time, they have to rely on statistics and um, I think it's like, almost like the question you have to ask yourself every day, what am I going to eat for dinner? It's a very important question and something to really think about every time. And your answer will be different every time. So I think it's, uh, it's what is very important in philosophy and medical education. And this is something that, uh, is actually, uh, where I see it's also a dialogue with philosophy. So it means that, um, Yeah, some people in philosophy can can learn something too from it, is this dialectic, this going back and forth between um, doing something and thinking about it. So what is the time where we have to uh, stop and ask ourselves questions, but also we have to continue to act again because Mm -hmm. we need both. So uh, Mm -hmm. one uh, quote that illustrates this is from Jean-Paul Sartre in uh, his book Nausea, uh, where he says, this is what I have been thinking. For the most commonplace event to become an adventure, you must, and this is all that is necessary, start recounting it. This is what fools people. A man is always a teller of tales. He lives surrounded by his stories and the stories of others. He sees everything that happens to him through them, and he tries to live his life as if he were recounting it. But you have to choose to live or to recount. So we have to, we have to do things. We have to be practical. We have to perform. But at mm. the same time, we have to ask what is the story we're telling ourselves about it because we are always um uh telling ourselves a story about it and uh, as I once saw on a bumper sticker in uh in the United States, <laughs> if you haven't changed your mind lately, how do you know you still have one
1: so right. it's like like a
0: <laughs> kind of like theoretical high, practicing theoretical hygiene, so you build up um an immunity uh against getting stuck into your favorite theory or your favorite right. practice or something like that.
2: So listening to you to talk with lots of examples um, from bumper stickers to <laughs> to uh, quotes from famous philosophers to experiences in uh, the medical education field, um, I, I think you can definitely fill a series about this. And I want to move back to your article because that was the kickoff of the series of philosophy in medical education. What I admire about your first paper is that you have um, kept the richness and the complexity of all these questions you've just addressed. And at the same time, it's quite a succinct paper with a few practices, a few themes, central themes, five of them. Um, Was that... uh, yeah, how was it to write such a simple paper about such a complex thing?
0: (laughs) We took our time.
2: (laughs) Yes. Oh, you did. You did. Yeah. 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 And um, what do you think is the biggest um, takeaway that you hope, what is the biggest message or the most important message you want people to take away
1: after reading this paper? If, if I learned that my medical educator readers read this article and said, I could do this, I would be thrilled. Um, and I, if, if they are feeling confident about, their own capacity to think through their problems and see them in new ways and having enthusiasm about teaming up with philosophers to to take deep dives into things that they're curious about, I would be thrilled. I would be absolutely thrilled. In in many ways, my goal as um, a researcher and scholar in medical education would be met. Do
2: you agree, Mario? Mario?
0: Yeah, I agree. So we take, um, subjects and not maybe not all of them, but, uh, some of them will be very important and very familiar to, to the people who, uh, read it. A new perspective on something, uh, it's the hardest thing to do. Like, mm-hmm. uh, if you start to ask yourself, uh, what is care? Uh, or, uh, even what is a table? And it's the hardest thing to, to answer something. And I think if then somebody, Comes up with you and you have you've, you've thought about uh, tables all your life and somebody comes up with well if you look at tables like this and that and it can completely change uh, your worldview but not because you accept their answer but because it shows you wow there's another way to look at it and I might get another way to look at it so this is for me is philosophy is not about coming up with a philosophy or a theory or a view on right, life right. that's kind yeah. of in in philosophy we've we've kind of moved past that so. That's the, the worst thing you can do as a philosopher is to accuse another uh, philosopher of metaphysics, which means like, yeah, you just built a very fancy system and it works and it's great and everything is consistent, but it's a system. So um, how do you avoid getting stuck in these uh, systems? Mm-hmm. And uh, for me, it's about opening something up. So that's a very long answer to your question. I can say (laughs) a very short uh, answer is that I hope, I hope it opens something up for uh, people who read it about what's important to them.
2: Right. You chose the example of teaching back as an example of um, how using a philosophical approach can shine new light on educational issues. Do you want to say a little bit more about teaching back
1: well, you know, we came up with the example together. We were chatting about the chapter. We were at the Amy conference and we are brainstorming about what, what example would create a nice thread that we could use to illustrate the different um, ways of orienting to an educational problem and um, how use it to illustrate the, the philosophical moves and practices. And Teachback was just a rich example for doing that because there's so much going on when we we talk about the word teachback. So it includes it includes the teaching relationship that's happening, it includes the doctor patient relationship, it includes stories or it includes influences of power and it has an interactional and a linguistic component and there it was just teach back was just a really rich example for going through all of these different things Mm -hmm. and we thought that this would be an example that a lot of medical educators would resonate to um, because teach back is not an uncommon challenge actually not just for residents but for um, independent practitioners themselves um, teach back can be a challenging task, so it seemed like something that would be accessible to most if not all readers and would provide a a, a springboard for talking about just about everything that we had hoped to cover in the in the article.
2: I think it would be nice um, uh, towards the end of the podcast to invite people that haven 't done so already to to read the paper. Why should they? Can you uh, pitch your paper in a very modern kind of swanky way? How would you pitch your paper to someone who hasn't read it?
0: No, don't read it. It's a waste of time. (laughs) I'm using reverse psychology here.
2: (laughs) Reverse psychology. I like it. (laughs) Creative approach.
0: Well, I would say we want to start a conversation with you. And we want to start a conversation about things that you really care about. Maybe they even keep you up at night and we don't have any answers, but we want we invite you to participate in this conversation.
1: I would definitely second that. If If you want an invitation to have some really interesting conversations about the things that you really want to move forward on, then read the article because we want to have this dialogue and we plan to continue it throughout the series.
2: Sounds like a fun adventure that you're starting here with this series. What is there for us to look forward to?
0: We've invited some uh, wonderful authors uh, who are uh, in the process of writing, and we're also looking for more. Uh, sometimes uh, it's a philosopher and a, magical, a medical education person. By the way, I keep noticing sometimes I say magical education. So National this it, uh, one one issue will be about the relationship between uh, teaching and learning, uh, because mm-hmm. it seems the most obvious thing that teaching causes learning, but Pista and Marije van Braak don't seem to think so. So that's one uh, area that uh, we'll get into. Then there's another one is which is an example of. Uh, how you can, uh, the things that you just see as a tool, you use it. And uh, But if you turn around and ask, how is this actually working? Well, language is one example of that. Because right. in medical education, maybe it's one of the most important tools that we have or the most important tool. But how does it work? And what is a different way of looking at it that we're used to? And right. uh, yeah, there are some other themes like one is, of course, uh, mortality, which we talked about a little bit already. Mm-hmm. But I see a, a very close relationship between mortality uh, or rather the the tendency humans have to avoid thinking about or facing their mortality and mm-hmm. technical thinking and technology. So right. uh, it's, I don't know how yet, but that's a, I find that a very interesting area because we're, yeah, we're speaking about technology a lot in uh, medical education and, but I don't see many times the link with being mortal. I think the the final one, if I if I have them all, is that uh, actually the way we we think and approach things, and we think this is the automatic way of approaching things, of natural ways. You can trace them back to philosophers. So a lot of um, ways in which uh, medical practitioners think and approach things, but um, people in society in general is through dualism, uh, which can be traced back to, for instance, René Descartes, the the guy who said, uh, I think, therefore I am. But there's been a lot of development after that. And it's not about saying that Descartes is right or wrong, but it would be fun to present some alternatives to thinking about mind and body as separate things. Okay, so oh, yeah. now, now I'm taking back the host privileges because if you know in a Zoom meeting, you can give them to somebody, but you can take them back as well. Aww. So, uh, Anna, I want to ask you um, yes. uh, what is for you? Because uh, I know you've been actually engaged with also the humanities and philosophical perspectives, yes. and you're also an experienced teacher, you're passionate about education. Mm -hmm. so what does it mean to do philosophy as a medical education professional
2: i think it's it means to me to uh to question what you are doing regularly i think reflection and doing philosophy might uh in my conceptual framework be not too far from each other might be in each other's orbits um I think reflecting on what I do, but also questioning assumptions, and uh, I notice as well with myself, this is personal, I um, guided group reflection for people that had their first real clinical experiences, um, and actually the the doing philosophy and questioning why are we doing things the way we do them, are there alternatives, um, are there certain uh, uh, ways that we think about concepts or about mortality or about um, life or about illness that that's influenced the way we perceive patients or ourselves or our colleagues um, I think those were very much the questions that I loved talking about with my students um, so to me guiding the group reflection and doing philosophy uh, feel like uh, family members um, so for me, it means questioning things and, and the, the, what stuck me is stuck what will stick with me as well as what you both said is the, the fun bit, the being curious, accepting that there's no answer, and keep on asking, like my three-year-old son, but why? Why? Why?" And then not accepting the "just because, but uh, joining, the, <laughs> joining the game of trying to find an answer every time and asking him back what do you think and asking different people so i think there's an element of of, uh, curiosity questioning everything i think is what i would say
0: that's a beautiful answer so thank you very much anna for uh, doing this and thank you very much anna and thank you for listening next time i'll have some more questions for you